Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Uncorrect New York. I'm Tom Rosati. I'm Stephen Witt. And in the Brick studio today, we have none other than City Councilman Justin Brannon from the 43rd District. Hello, hello. What neighborhoods are those that you represent, Justin? Well, Steve, that would be Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Bath Beach, and parts of Bensonhurst. Great. All right, Tom, go on. I just wanted to get those neighborhoods no, in. No, excellent. Uh, so we are going to uh, do a segment on how you got into politics and talk about your background. Um, cool. Because it's very interesting and it's a long and winding <laughs> road. Sure. Um, and then we'll discuss what's going on in your district and uh, the issues that you're working on in the city council. Sure. Um, so, yeah, we'll leave it to you to where you want to start in terms of your <laughs> journey. <laughs> Once upon a time. Um yeah, so um, I really had a, a very sort of um, unorthodox path to getting involved in politics. Um, growing up, I really never, never cared uh, about politics. I didn't follow politics. Um, you grew up in Bay Ridge. Grew up in Bay Ridge. I grew up yeah, in the neighborhoods where I represent. That's, wh- that's where I grew up, went to school. Um, and I guess thinking back now, I understand um, – you know, I understand more about it, but I think growing up and also, you know, once you start working and, you, you know, you're just sort of living paycheck to paycheck, trying to pay the bills, trying to make sure you have money for groceries after you pay the rent, who the president is doesn't really affect your life that much. I mean, these days it's it's quite different. Right. Um, but growing up, um, it just seemed it's just seemed very distant to me. I think. Um, uh y- y- I didn't see how it affected my day-to-day life, and I didn't, I, it didn't. Right. Um, so, but but that said, um, growing up, you know, I was I was really an animal rights activist, and um, I, I grew up with a, with um, uh, you know p- kids that were older than me who used to bring me to rallies and stuff. And how many I, kids are in your family? No, no, no. I, I'm an oh, only I'm okay. an only child. Mm-hmm. I'm saying um, the kids I grew up with right. were older than me. So how did that, you know, I, animal rights becomes... Well, that, like so so I, start, and I started going, you know, I would go to animal rights rallies. I would go to some of the ACT UP, you know, AIDS rallies. Um, and um, How old were you? Like this is like the late 80s or nah, early yeah, I 90s? was like, I was a young, I was probably 13, 14, 15. Right. Um, and I was already playing music, playing guitar. I taught myself how to play guitar, and, and I, I was. I got to interject real quick. Yes, Who's the first musician? Because I know you were a musician. Who's the first person where you heard and go, "Man, this is what I want to do: be a musician." <laughs> Who was the some uh, of these early? I people? guess my first favorite band as a kid was probably The Doors. Really, um, mm-hmm. but I never. I mean, I'll, I'll get to that right. Eventually, mm-hmm. I became a, a, a professional, like world touring musician. But that was never the plan. Like I didn't grow up dreaming about being. A rock star. That was just never the plan. It just it just sort of happened. But um, uh, <laughs> I'm and ironically, in. Steve, yeah. that was your plan, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I came here as a this musician still, myself. Still time. Yeah. Still time. <laughs> um, um, so I guess what I'm saying is, it wasn't until much later that I started to put all these pieces together to see that being an activist was just a few steps away from getting involved in electoral politics or political activism. But as a young kid, barely, uh, you know, a, a teenager, that I was, um, the ligaments weren't there yet for me. It was I was going to these rallies. I was, I was super involved in the animal rights stuff. I was super, in, you know, involved and interested in the AIDS awareness and all the ACT UP stuff in, in, in New York. 
Um, but it it didn't click for me yet that 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 politics was sort of the way to get things done. Um, and this was enmeshed in the music because absolutely. So the music I, the music we played was was hardcore punk, right? Um, which is basically the whole genre is basically the antithesis to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's like the polar polar opposite. It's straight a, edge. Straight edge. It's about music with a message. It's about all the stuff we're talking about now, social justice, all this stuff, um, you know, is behind the music, right? I think to the untrained ear, like to your dentist, it sounds all the same. <laughs> but you, but, but people that know, they know that there are, there's, you know, there's Metallica, and then there's bands that actually talk about real stuff, not Dungeons and Dragons and, and chalices and goblins. Did you like stuff. the Sex Pistols? Of course. What, did Sex they? Pistols were basically the monkeys, but they were good. Why were they the monkeys? Because they were a band that was basically put together by a guy who wanted to promote a clothing line and they wrote oh, songs. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, they were I mean they were great, yeah. but they were the monkeys were great too, but they were a fraud, right? So and what about the clash? They didn't play their instruments, right? Like what who is it? Well, Johnny Rotten or one I, of them didn't. Well, um the bass player, um yeah. Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious, Sid Vicious yeah. yeah. He didn't know what he was. They didn't even yeah. have him plugged in, but um <laughs> I mean they were good, but they were they were created to be what they were. They were created to be this an image an rather image, than an image. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I didn't know that. I never knew. Yeah, that. yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean they weren't. They wrote great songs. So did the Monkeys, right? right? But the Monkeys were a total. It was a. What fraud. about the Clash? Did you think the Clash? Oh, I love the Clash. Sure. You no, but they weren't. They weren't. They were real. Do you think they were political? Uh, absolutely. So I can honestly say that I. So the way that this started dovetailing for me was. Listening to bands like the Dead Kennedys or the Minutemen or Napalm Death and all these bands who were singing about stuff where I was actually learning stuff from listening to their songs. Like right. I was learning more from these bands than I learned in like history class. Um, you know, Dead Kennedys screaming about Ronald Reagan and Alexander Haig. It was like, who, why? <laughs> but but you learn, you know, that's that's how I was learning right. about stuff, you know? Um, and um and so it wasn't until later, then, I, then I, I worked in radio for a while, and I sort of fell into union organizing because I became, basically they hired me to work at a radio station, and I was just so thrilled to even have the job. I forget what the pay was at the time, but it was miserable. Right. It was peanuts. Mm -hmm. It was just excited to be working. And at one point they were like, okay, we're going to need you to go ahead and work on the weekends too. And I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, I, I just, I'm just excited to have the job. And then I started talking to other employees, and they, I was like, did they tell you when you got the job you're going to have to work on right. the weekends? And next thing I know, I was like a shop steward for my union and basically going to management and saying, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're paying us X. You, you told us we'd have to work this many hours, but every week you're telling us we have to work on the weekends. So next thing I know, I was a union organizer, and things then kind of sort of started to crystallize. Um, was there a union that you were working like AFTRA. Yeah, okay. AFTRA. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then I guess it wasn't until I, I then started working for my predecessor, Councilman Gentili, that I, I fell in love with local government, where mm -hmm. that's when I really finally fell in love with politics, where it was, okay, someone can walk into the office with a problem, you can fix that problem, you can undo that person's knot, send them on their way and that was some that was immediate and tangible it, benefit it was immediate right. it was tangible it was real time whereas growing up and hearing Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or whoever it was it, it just didn't i didn't it didn't have that same effect it didn't have i didn't i couldn't feel the tangible effect on my life it was a general sort of angst or reaction against society and knowing that 
something wasn't right and so this music was really tapping into absolutely the, yeah, um, I mean that I mean you know you're listening to these bands where they're singing about stuff that you're like are these guys reading my mail like they're, right. they're, they're singing about stuff that I am going through at this moment right um but I think my journey it just took time for all the all these pieces to, to make sense like the unionize uh, union organizing part the 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 you know the activism piece that it all sort of made sense that I I was always sort of heading in this direction I always loved helping people and this sort of just became a means to an end like this is this is my vehicle to help as many people as I can is getting into politics you know well so before we go straight into your political career we we, we do have to touch upon some of your bands sure <laughs> sure I mean because you were yeah you were a world touring musician you had two very popular bands in the hardcore genre um indecision and most precious blood that's right um so how did how did that transpire Uh, indecision um started in 1993 um and it came out of just a bunch of friends from high school we all went to a catholic high school what high school zavarian Zavarian, in bay ridge so you know a lot of catholic guilt a lot of (laughs) a lot of soul searching a lot of questioning your faith that kind of stuff and you know just being teenagers um so Indecision was from 93 to 2000, and we put out a whole bunch of records, toured the world. Um, Where did you guys go? Basically, you if they would give us five plane tickets, we would go. Anywhere. Um, anywhere. I mean, we did about 50-something countries. Oh, wow. Uh, across Europe. You know, so um, The hardcore scene is really... Like I have a friend who plays punk music, and he says like, "There's n- you can always go anywhere." It's and one s- absolutely. It's one. People scene. will come and support you, and it's amazing. There's yeah. no other scene like it. If you're in like some rock band, just hoping that some A and R guy is going to discover you in a bar, like good luck. But right. if you're in a hardcore band, you know we've played in South Africa, and there were kids who knew our music and knew our lyrics. Um, <laughs> we went to Australia, New Zealand, Japan, you know, you, Russia, you name right. it. Anywhere that they basically what we the first time we went to Europe we went for three three months it oh, was wow. insane totally <laughs> totally insane and this is back before the Euro this is back when all the borders were closed you had to change you know, it was change it, it was mind. totally right. insane um, and uh, we we would sort of I don't know how we got into doing this but basically like the tour the people putting the tours together the production guys would say okay we want to send you to this country and this country and this this city whatever. But we're not going to send you here, here, and here because no one goes there anymore. And we would say, no, 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 that's where we want to go. We want to go where no one goes. No one right. goes to Spain and Portugal. No one tours the south of France. Well, then send us to the south of France and Spain and Portugal and Basque Country and all this stuff. <laughs> and that's what we did. Um, and we, you know, we 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 grew a real loyal following. And then um, Indecision was around from '93 to 2000. And then uh, we started a band right after that, Most Precious Blood. A lot of the same people. And that went another seven years or so. And so then, why did you give this up and get into politics? This sounds really it, fun. It, it, <laughs> there weren't it, enough women <laughs> and fun. It was I too mean, much you know, fun. It <laughs> was. I mean, what's funny is what's yeah. funny is you know a, a lot of people think like you know um, why would you give this up? Like it's some. But it, it, the you know look, do we have a lot of fun? Sure, but we weren't. We were like the thinking man's band. Like we weren't. You know, having parties in the hotel and throwing M80s in the ice machine. We were like <laughs> watching like CNN and stuff. You right. know? So um, that was just our thing. Like we had a blast, but it wasn't about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That just wasn't right. You're thing. straight edge. You just you're yeah, was, somewhere in we Europe. We were just enjoying you, yeah. the experience, and you know, I passed up on a lot of great German beer. Like that just wasn't my <laughs> that wasn't my thing. You know. So, um, but you you build a really passionate, loyal following with kids who 
there's a lyric from the band from Indecision from a song uh, that for those I love I will sacrifice. And there's people all over the world that have these lyrics tattooed on them because they were fans of the band. So it was a really looking back, it was an insane and humbling experience. And um, all the countries we got to visit, places that I'll probably never be lucky enough to go to again, um, that I got to see and really got to travel at not like a tourist. Like, did right. we go to the Leaning Tower of Pisa and all this stuff? Yeah, but we also saw we also saw like the really the dead end streets and and the, the places nobody goes and stuff of all these countries, which was just an amazing experience. And I think it was preparing me also to run for office. You know, preparing me that experiencing different cultures and right. dealing with different people and sort of, you know, we 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 played a show with Run DMC in Holland, <laughs> and we were in a rented. We were, we were, we were, our van broke down in France, I think. So we had to rent a van in France, right? Which is hard enough. Cause, right, you know, sure. I took French for eight years. And it's when I got to France for the first time and started speaking, no, I started speaking yeah. French. They answered me in, in English. English. Yeah. Yes. They don't like that. <laughs> They're just like, that's how uh, bad, you, no, no, no. That's we how cannot, bad my French yeah. was. So, all right. So we, we, like, this is the kind of stuff that it just prepares you for life, right? So you're in France, your van breaks down. No one knows how to drive stick. You have to figure out how to get to a show in Holland with Run DMC. <laughs> so you rent a van. Wait, wait, was Run DMC with you at the time? No, no, that, oh, okay. that would have been amazing. <laughs> we were going, we were on our way to a show to play with Run DMC. We had, Run DMC is from Queens. We mm. were from Brooklyn. We had to go all the way to Holland to hook up with Run DMC. Mm. <laughs> so uh, the van breaks down in France. We had to rent a van. We say they say, okay, we'll rent you this van, but you cannot take it out of the country. No problem. We yeah. immediately take the van to oh. Holland. And at, we're loading into the the, uh, the show in Holland, and the, the rental van in a, in the country we're not supposed to be in gets hit by like a cherry picker thing. <laughs> so now we're in the different country we're not supposed to be in. The van is totaled. So all these things just sort of prepare you for real life, you know. And I think, um, you know, it just I think it makes you a better elected official because it it, it prepares you for stuff. Um, problems that can't be yeah, solved. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, problems that can't be solved, and and trying to, you know, uh, triage stuff, and you know, and but again, the whole time I'm doing this, never in a million years, if you had told me when I was dealing with a broken van with Run DMC right. that I was going to one day run for office, <laughs> um, it just happened, you know. Um, but looking back, it all makes it makes sense. Okay, so I have to ask as well. You had a side project called Caninus. Caninus. Which the was the first first ever uh, grindcore band with dogs singing? Oh, really? Actual dogs, that. actual canines. Did you audition them? Or? Yeah, <laughs> there are dogs, um, and that that got like a real cult following. I, 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 I we, can imagine. I think that's a great idea. I think yeah. now maybe you're a little even a little too early on that. Like, <laughs> I think you should restart Caninus. You would make a ton of money. We actually ended up doing a split record with a band who has a parrot as a lead singer. Oh, really? So there's a whole genre of this. Stuff. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we have one more album. We we, we recorded another record with. Um, uh, Akali is the lead singer <laughs> with, with uh, Richard Christie from Howard Stern. He's playing drums on it. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So, but who the hell knows if it's ever going to see the light of day? Well, I um, I I did look. I did listen to some of the songs <laughs> on Spotify. Okay. And I have to say, I didn't for even hard, realize, I didn't even know it was. You mean was Caninus on Spotify? Yeah. Oh my god, I had no idea. And for for hardcore, it was the most intelligible hardcore <laughs> songs I've. I, I could understand them more than normal people <laughs> singing hardcore. I I kind of got it. 
Um, I just want to read some of the, the titles. Can I read some of the titles? Is this Caninus or the other band? Caninus. Oh, okay, yeah. No Dogs, No Masters. That's right. Oh, I like that one. Bite the Hand That Breeds You. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's we were funny. all about, sh- you know, we're about shelter <laughs> animals and not, a, you know, adopting, not buying. New Yorkie, cr- New Yorkie crew. For a while, they were trying to call pit bulls New Yorkies. Oh, yeah. okay. Didn't, oh, I really, didn't, didn't catch on. Because I was wondering where the Yorkshire Terrier fit into your <laughs> yeah, aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> um, locking jaws. Right. That's about the myth about everyone thinks that pit bulls have locking jaws, which is not true. Right. Um, and my favorite, I mean, th- I, what I liked, I, what I thoroughly enjoyed was that your track, uh, which was just called Studio Guy Gets Pissed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we were recording in the studio with the dogs, and we promised this guy, like, oh, it'll be fine, don't worry. <laughs> and, of course, it was a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Getting dogs to sing on cue is not easy. All right, so so he's basically just being like, I can't believe, come yeah. on, man. Like, <laughs> what is this? You got dogs to, in the vocal booth? He's, like, used to cover, you know, recording, like, cover like, bands and stuff, yeah. you know? So he wasn't ready for Canucks. I'm not. I, I don't get paid enough for this. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's what it was. That's right. what it was. Um, well, I think it's a great idea, and <laughs> I think <laughs> maybe I got something to fall back on. I absolutely uh, anything with dog. I mean, the dog market or the pet market. It's any, big. Yeah, like it's it's. Some a, people have told me when they listen to it with their dog that their dog somehow it like understands what's happening because they're speaking <laughs> in like dog language. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we I had a record called "The Language of Wolves." Okay, um, and my friend was playing it once, and, and the dogs went nuts. The dogs started coming to the house. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, man, it's interesting. I really like it, <laughs> Steve. That's something you, you haven't done, like brought animals into your be- into your. No, bed. I haven't. Yeah. I am curious though. Did you have a dog growing up? Growing up, no, I never had pets. I think my parents didn't think I would take care of it. It wasn't until I moved out that I got dogs. Do you have dogs now? Right now, I do not. Do you have cats? No, I'm allergic. Really? Yeah. That's, and no well, birds. We're, we're, about, we're in the process of adopting, uh, my wife and I, in the process of adopting two uh, greyhounds, like uh, former racing greyhounds. After yeah, the, and a lot after of After they're done stray. racing, they oh, get Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we're trying to adopt two of them. We've always had adopted. I've always ever had pit bulls, um, adopt, you know, shelter pit bulls, because no one wants them, and it's horrible. Yeah. Um, and now we're trying to save a couple of greyhounds. Do you know Sean Casey Animal Rescue? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I live right around the corner. I got oh, my right cat yeah. there. I oh, got right. Yeah, yeah he's like great. Sean. Yeah, yeah he's he's great. good. Yeah. 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 So do you have the most tattoos of any city councilman? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's undisputed, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So there's no one even close. I don't think so. Because there's one city councilman who also had a musical past, which is Stephen Levin. Yeah, he do played you know? bass. For, and, and I don't remember the band, but... The, Stylophone. Right, but the, ba- the those guys went on to form some other band that got big. Well, so they're so two of them play in MGMT. Now. Oh, that's it, right? right yeah, right. okay. And that's my friend actually, who's in the punk. Oh, okay. And he was in the band with Small Stephen World. Levin. So I knew Stephen Levin before he was. Oh, I that's cool. I don't think I've ever actually met him as a city councilman. Yeah, he, Steve and I always talk about jamming, like in the basement of City Hall. Um, that, but it would be fun. <laughs> yeah. So, what was your first tattoo? My first tattoo. Oh my God. Oh, I think I got something on my leg. There was this famous tattoo artist, Huggy Bear, in Brooklyn. Back when tattoos, oh, yeah. tattoos were still illegal. You had to do like a secret knock on the door. It was it was crazy. Um, I remember going to tattoo parlors where they had like the the little sliding thing in the door where all you see is the person's eyeballs when they say, okay, like what are you here for? Really? It was crazy. It was totally illegal. I mean, everyone was getting tattoos, but technically it was illegal in New York. And I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I don't remember when it became legal, but- Huh. I guess I started getting tattoos in the early 90s, and it was absolutely illegal. Really? Absolutely. It well, was a 
underworld. Like everyone had tattoos, right. but to go to a tattoo parlor, it was like a very kind of wink wink kind of thing. I remember my first tattoo I got at Huggy Bear. It was on Park Slope, I think, on Seventh Avenue, and it was I walked up like a three story like brownstone, and we just had a little parlor like in one of the rooms. I got like some um, some like uh, Guardian of the Soul thing I found in some book. I don't know. Um, and um, yeah, it, since, it, means, it sounds like it means a lot to you. <laughs> it did at the time. <laughs> it did at the time. Um, but since then, it's just w- once you get more than two, three, four, five, it's like you know whatever. Right. You know? Well, that's great. Yeah. All right, so um, let's get into some policy stuff because you're both looking at me. I, <laughs> I don't know. You, you know, I am interested. You know, I came here as a musician myself. It was right a on. different trajectory, and I can't say. Um, I will say the the one recording I made, David Peel was the producer. That's awesome. David. Uh, yeah, David Peel was a guy that played with John Lennon. It was David Peel on the Lower East Side, and he was a early kind of. He played with the Plastic Yono Band. Right on. He was a Washington Square Park musician, and you know he had a, he had a following. And right, right. I used to play at a place called Mills Tavern on every Friday and Saturday night. I came here. I thought I'd be discovered. The next Bob <laughs> right, Dylan. Right. Now I realize that I. I what year did you come? In 1980. Okay. And so you know it was kind of rough and. I lived down the street, and I'd been around the world. I traveled. It just was really rough, and I thought I'd make it. And I had a gig at Mills. I never thought about recording. I thought somebody would come in and discover me. Right, right. And I used to open for David Peel, and a but lot back of them then liked they, Back then, that happened. It doesn't really happen anymore, but back then, they did discover bands. Yeah. I mean, now now what what I've seen is they want to— uh, bands that I've known that that ended up getting picked up by major, la- I don't even know what that even means anymore. But right. I've been out of it for so long. But bands that got picked up by major labels, the major labels would say, "Go put out three, four, five records, get a huge following, make some money, and then we'll try to sign you and take you to the next level." It wasn't like, right. "Oh, we right. there's a band in a garage that's got a great sound. We're gonna we're gonna sign these guys." It was go out there fail, you know, see if you can make it, put out some records on an indie label, and then the majors look at you. It's very rare that they scoop you up from... from. Uh, you know, it's weird, because when I was doing it, I was like, I'm a folk singer. And people said, Steve, you're a good songwriter. Just call yourself a singer-songwriter. I'm like, no, I want to be a folk singer. At the same time, Madonna was making it, right. the Beastie Boys, they're all around. I would play at CB's, you know, they had the coffee shop next door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And occasionally I'd get a gig at CB's as, like, the opening thing. Right. And for the Beastie Boys? No, but I remember <laughs> when the Beastie Boys were playing CBGBs sure, right and on. they were just another band. I mean, I just noticed the old CB's gallery is now a, yeah, pa- a, Patagon- a Patagonia uh, clothing store. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I played that gallery. It still a bunch breaks of my times. heart. It yeah. still breaks my heart. Yeah, that was a great club. It's the new New York. So yeah. uh, going into politics, well, man. I, uh-huh. well, I have a question, actually. It is a segue into mm. politics. All right. But so <clears throat> with the arts and with music having informed you both of your political acumen and um, you know your reason for being, how does that affect the way that you are a elected official in terms of the arts, in terms of your of what's going on in your district, in terms of um, valuing the arts, both in schools and in sure. other initiatives? I mean, one of the things that one of the things that breaks my heart is is the fact that we you know council members have to fund. Um, so many arts and music projects, whether it's after school stuff or whether it's programming that can be integrated into the schools, because the schools don't prioritize arts and music. Um, 
it becomes like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we could also do an art class? Right. Um, and my wife is an artist. She owns an art school for kids in, in, in Bay Ridge. Oh. And, um, so this stuff is super important to me. And, and it's, it's, you know, and the way that it's been going, that the first things that get cut are always arts and music programs. Right. And um, it's just as important as anything else, if not more important, the way that it can expand your mind and, and get you to think outside the box and tap into stuff that you know, math and science doesn't tap into, um, but it's always the first thing on the chopping block. And it drives me nuts because, you know, so much of, of, of the funds that we have to allocate go towards supplementing this stuff so that kids can experience art and music. So that's know? not in the DOE budget. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, your, your example of how you looked up historical references in punk songs Absolutely. is a perfect example of yeah. how something that grabs you and moves you. Totally. In ways in you a, don't even realize. Right. I mean, you know, you, you go. You know, I remember being a kid going to museums and stuff, and I could like sit still for like twenty minutes before I had to run home and like create something. Like it just inspires you in ways that you don't even realize at the time. Um, but unfortunately, you know, even as we we're evolving constantly, art and music is always like second fiddle. It's never prioritized. It's never um, part of, of the standard curriculum. It's always you know. In yeah. At least it's a fiddle. Second, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always in addition to, yeah. you know? or it's like just sort of like browbeaten into some sort of steam program where like well, the it, only purpose is to learn some sort of you know really basic technical skill. Right, like, it's like a, it's it's a square peg in a round hole kind right. of thing. It's not just like doing art, you right. know. And um, I talk to my wife about it all the time. It's like my wife says like she would love to basically be put out of business because she exists because they don't do enough art in schools. Right. Um, and, the, and, you know, especially, um, you know, uh, in, in low income areas where they don't even have after school programs like that or they don't have the local art school. It's terrible. Right. It's these are the, people are being denied access to stuff that could be um, inspiring them in ways that you can't even imagine. Yeah. You know? It's a real shame. I mean, D <clears throat> a couple of years ago, uh, DYCD did expand the middle school after school program. Right. Is that correct? I mean, that's I mean, at, and look, and I think it, it dovetails into also now. You know, uh, working families who you know the the eight a.m. to two thirty school day is just does not compute. I mean, it doesn't no. make sense. You know, I mean, I have friends who are working and have and have two three kids who they have to have their kids programmed from six a.m. to six p.m. because they got to work, they got to pay the rent, pay the bills, take care of their kids. You know, so it's and the summer too. The summer's nuts. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So yeah, before school care, after yeah. school care, but we hear about this a lot. I mean, it's um, it's a real struggle. You know, I mean, UPK has been great. Um, 3K will be great if, if we ever get it in, in all in all the city. Um, but but parents really struggle with this stuff. It's it's not easy. Hmm. Uh, you, I didn't want to interrupt <laughs> you two guys. I really know if you got, you know, uh, uh, I guess just moving into uh, policy. I know yeah. lately um, property tax has been on your mind, oh and I know goodness, like yeah. to some people. It's, I mean, to, it's not a lot, but to other people, there's a lot of inequity. Can you firstly explain what is the inequity exactly? Well, the inequity dates back to the law that was passed in 1981 um, when New York was a very, very different city than it is now. Um, and the, the, the system that they, cr they created and, and really haven't tinkered with in a real way in, 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 so in almost 40 years um, is just rife with inequities um, because you have 
basically, uh, 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 and the, uh, the example people always give, I mean, if, an, if one more person sends me a copy of Mayor de Blasio's <laughs> tax or uh, property tax bill, I mean, I'm going to freak out. Like, people in Park Slope who live in multi-million dollar brownstones have lower effective property tax rates than people in my district, in Bay Ridge, Southern Brooklyn, and Staten Island, and parts of Central Brooklyn, Queens, but a lot of areas, right? Um, like, and and the differences are really, really substantial. We're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars, where a guy who owns a multi-million-dollar brownstone is paying less in property taxes than a guy who owns an attached home in Diker Heights, um, and the system has just been ignored for so long that it's it, it's pitting neighborhoods against neighborhoods, right? Now you have people saying this would never happen in Park Slope and this would this kind of thing, and it's horrible. I mean, it's it's creating a class war because uh, the the system has been ignored and no one's ever had the the political guts to turn and face it and fix it. Um, so you know, we we pushed and pushed in the city council with the speaker to get the mayor to impanel this property tax reform commission. Um, and they're looking at it, and I'm, I'm hearing that things are going well. I'm hearing that they're going to come up with a prescription that hopefully is going to finally give some relief to the folks that have been paying through the nose for all these years. My biggest concern is, um, you know, people in my district and, and districts that, that are paying exorbitantly high property taxes, we're not looking for other people to feel pain, right? Because that doesn't help us, right? So. Getting Park Slope to finally pay their fair share, that's fantastic. But if my if the people in my district and other areas where have been paying too much for too long don't get some sort of relief, then people are gonna freak out all over again, right? And I, I don't blame them because what's going on is if you lower if you say, okay, now people in these areas that have been paying too little for too long, we gotta bring them up to where they should be, that's great. But you also have to now bring down the people that have been paying way too much for way too So is the, idea, <clears throat> is the idea that basically since, you know, the property values in Park Slope increased so much and that you could only raise the assessed value a certain percentage per year that in order to compensate, the city then would continue to raise taxes on neighborhoods like Bay Ridge and Staten Island – who really shouldn't have just there shouldn't have been a justification for raising their taxes. Right, and years. if you look, it also it also goes back to I I, I was born um, uh, my when I was born my parents lived in Park Slope for about six months. Mm -hmm. When they lived in Park Slope, it it was you know the, the late seventies. It was a totally different world. Right. Um. You know they they left Park Slope because they didn't feel safe. Right. You know, <laughs> and they moved to, to Bay Ridge. And even back then. Bay Ridge was insanely expensive in comparison to Park Slope. Yeah. These days, 40 years later, things are very, very different. Um, but all these years later, based on on the, the law that was passed in 81, it just never changed. I mean, th the world is so different than it was in 1981, and we're still basing the property taxes on this, this law. So right. there's a million things that are wrong with it. Normally, municipalities assess properties like every five years to seven years, yeah. right? I mean, that's for a, a normal city, that would be an ongoing process. It's weird that it's taken. Right, and one of the things, I mean, there was there was an issue that came up where in the last session um, they passed a, a property tax cap um, on uh, municipal, basically everyone but New York City. Uh -huh. Right. Um, and a lot of people were like, oh, why the heck didn't, why couldn't we do that here? I, and sure, everyone wants a freeze. It's basically a freeze, right? It's a property. The, the, what, what the people that are smarter than me say is that Yes, it w everyone wants thinks a freeze sounds great, 
But what that effectively would do is freeze in the dysfunction that currently exists. Right. So if you fr- do a property tax freeze for five, ten years, now you're going to – that's it. You're paying what you're paying. Park Slope's paying what they're paying. It's over. Right. So um, so the issue is, I mean, with this commission as well, like that there is this sort of – there's a any – any change to the system has to be revenue neutral, right? That right. They're not looking right. They're so, not looking to cut taxes. They're going to say, okay, well, we can redistribute everything, but we still want to get the same amount of taxes that we got under the old system. So then, therefore, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. There's going to be winners and losers. Right. But my district and a lot of other districts have been losing for 40 years. Right. So it's time for other districts to pay their fair share. It's you know and. It's the right thing to do. It's you know the, the other thing to add in. I think the wild card is there's a lot of condo owners now, and condo owners are supposed to pay property taxes. And 421A, uh, you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. just people. There's, defi- that, um, there's definitely a concern that this is going to negatively impact the one percent, you know, and and they're you know they're sort of uh, they're, they're certainly going to do everything they can to fight back against it if they see that suddenly they have to pay their fair share. But I'm hoping that. Uh, a mayor in his second term, you know, will have the guts to because once once the commission comes out with their prescription for what needs to happen, then it's got to get done in Albany. Right. right. So um, there, there's a bunch of steps here. Like they'll come out with whatever they think is the answer. Um, and I'm confident that it's going to make sense and that it's finally going to give folks relief. Um, but then we got to go and get it done. Um, and that's not always easy. We have a big issue in our district with illegal conversions where you have right. people who are taking two family homes and chopping them up, you know, so that you can have 15, 20, 25 people living in a two-family home. And it's dangerous for yeah. everybody. Yeah. For the tenants, it's dangerous for first responders. It's not um, fair to neighbors either. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just yeah. bad. It's yeah. bad. And But people don't always make the connection that it's because we have an affordable housing crisis, right? People would, would not prefer to live in these chopped up uh, units if they could afford to live in a regular apartment, you know? Yeah. So... There's a lot of cognitive dissonance with this stuff, you know, with people who don't make those correlations um, that, you know, the affordable housing crisis, what we were talking about before with senior housing. I mean, one of the biggest things I heard, I still hear, but certainly during the campaign, knocking on doors and talking to people about what they care about and now as an elected official um, is senior housing. You know, folks that are basically, you know, by the grace of God and the rent laws that they can stay in their apartment, um, but are you know, one crisis away from, from being homeless. And, and, you know, there, there's a big, there's a big, you know, feeling that from seniors who want to, you know, want to, um, you know, live in, what do you say, live in pl- age in place, right? Who right. Folks who don't want to move to the retirement community in New Jersey, you know, they want to stay uh, where they live and, and it's getting harder and harder for them to do that. And, um, you know, I think the senior housing piece has to also become part of this discussion. You know, hmm. yeah, Steve, you wanted to discuss uh, <coughs> senior Be- being issues. A senior. Yeah, no, that, no, I don't know. I wouldn't know. But um, I do think that uh, recently and I'm going to do a story about it. I Somebody told me in England they created there's other senior issues that aren't really being addressed. Like one in England, they created a department of loneliness. Like a lot of seniors are lonely. It's mm-hmm. like a really big issue for seniors. And everybody talks about senior housing. There's loneliness issues. Medicare supposedly pays for somebody to be there seven days a week if a senior needs it. And a lot of uh, HMOs are, like, only giving them three or four days a week. Um, In Japan, they use technology. Like here, we talk about technology, about getting uh, Surrey and all these people to help you. (laughs) And and in Japan, (laughs) a lot of the whole um, 
uh, AI. I won't say A1. Like that's the sauce. I know. <laughs> a- AI. <laughs> AI issues in Japan are geared toward helping seniors. Robotics and it's they have robots that like bathe seniors in Japan. I don't know what That's what crazy. it is that might be, you know, but I know that they gear their technology to actually come up with solutions for certain demographics. Well, you're you're absolutely. I mean, you're right. Like we, I mean, we have a tendency of sort of ignoring seniors in our youth centered society yep like and a lot of yeah, the and there's stats i don't know what they are but i'll bring it up even though i have no idea what they are but there's stats that over the next 20 30 years that m- more than half of our population is going to be seniors right because of the baby boomers. And over. Yeah. yeah and and uh, there's services for these folks are completely lacking I yeah mean, you know and I think that's one argument, you know, the AOCs and the progressives, the the, the the progressive wing of the Democrats, they're like, forgive our college loans and it's all this stuff. And it's like, well, is that going to cost Social Security? I mean, it, I mean where are they going to come up with the money? I don't hear them saying anything about seniors. They're all kind of looking at, well, we're millennials and we should have this and that and forgiveness. But the uh, money comes somewhere. I think that it would be nice if they address senior issues. Well, no, they say they're going to tax Wall Street for that. Well, I mean, whether it's I mean, I, opportunity cost is different. I mean, I hear it's, it's, we need to make seniors a sexy issue, and it's not. That's the problem, right? People don't. It's not the first thing that folks talk about. But meanwhile, it's it's a huge percentage of everybody's voter base, right? I mean, right. seniors are the ones that elect people, um, and so, and they're always getting the short end of the stick. I mean, and it's it's unfortunate. Um, you know, we this you know the senior centers and stuff that we have in our district. We try to do everything we can to support them but it's it's not much i mean it's it's them hanging out in a, a catholic school gymnasium and and you know but there's not a lot of programs for them and there's not a lot of you know um you know our, my district is uh, what they call a nork which is a naturally uh, occurring retirement community so huh. you have a lot a lot of people who are 65 and over who are aging in place and live there their whole lives and you know now for the first time in 60 70 years they're being faced with oh my god do i am i gonna have to move because i can't afford it anymore you know and people are living longer. And that's the other yeah. thing. I mean, you know, Social Security is planned for, oh, you work till 65, you, you live, in, you know, you retire for seven years and then you die. Right. Now people are living into their 90s routinely. So not only is there a, a fiscal issue, but there's also a social yeah, issue. absolutely. You know, because it burdens uh, families when you have to take care of someone. And, you know, there's a lot of issues in terms of caring for elderly people. And we, we're not really it's just dealing not, with it. Yeah, it's it's... It's it it becomes this sort of special interest thing when it should be this you this should be a thing that we all care about. I always thought that one thing with seniors they need to do more instead of senior centers intergenerational centers because a lot of times like even when I was growing up I got along better with my grandparents and my parents because my parents were the authority right Mm -hmm. and I always think if they had intergenerational centers where they had youth centers kind of combined with senior centers. I think they do that in Europe. Yeah, right? yeah. In I, the Netherlands, they do that. Yeah, I think that would be kind of cool. Like, in yeah, you could learn so much from, from from this generation. I mean, you know, that's they don't call them the greatest generation for nothing. You know, I mean, there's a lot you right. can learn there. All right, so we're in our lightning round, Tom, or anything more? <laughs> um, well, your lightning round is always about senior issues. So <laughs> no, yeah, no, I've I've something new. You do? Yeah, but are I we on lightning I'm round? Do you know what our lightning round is? No, I'm a little worried. All right, a lightning <laughs> round is we can say one thing that's on our mind, off the cuff, anything, just, you know, okay, for a quick talk, all right? Yeah. 
So I'll start with when you were talking about music and you mentioned uh, somebody, Howard Stern's drummer or something. Did you ever meet Howard Stern? And since we're a podcast, what do you think his influence uh, is on, on the broader culture and radio and podcast? I mean, I think he's what he's become is is so so far from what he started out as which was you know just bringing in strippers and all this <laughs> this nonsense right Get, you know paying people to eat dog food and that kind of stuff now he's sort of evolved into this like master craftsman interviewer um, and people really respect his interviews he gets people to sort of uh, you know he gets people to admit stuff that they wouldn't normally admit elsewhere you know on other channels and stuff and I still my f- I mean, I've always been a Howard Stern fan. Um, I'm a huge fan, mostly of when he, when the staff makes fun of each other and that kind of stuff. I could listen to that stuff all day long. Um, but I think you know, I think radio is really. I mean, I'm a huge radio fan, and radio is really on its last legs. And I think he was probably the last one to really put his mark on it. I mean, you know, people like Rush Limbaugh and these people. Um, are just as much around because of, of what Howard Stern did as Bob Grant was, right? So um, people don't Don re- I miss. Yeah, all, all that <laughs> yeah, stuff. People don't make that yeah. connection. But I think he was. I think Stern is great. I think you know what he's really um, matured, you know, in, in what he does. But I still get the most kick out of, of him just you know busting shops with all his staff and stuff. Because you know, listening. I've been listening to him since. I was in like eighth grade, you know, right. so it's a long time. So he's an influential figure, you think, in American culture? I don't know. That I don't know. I think he's a well-known figure. I think everyone knows him. I think people still think that he's the guy, um, you know, bringing strippers into the studio and that kind of nonsense. Um, Did you support his, didn't he run for governor <laughs> think, or mayor? A couple of times I think yeah. he was going to run mm. for governor. Him and Kinky Friedman. Um, All right. But, um. I think his impact will certainly be felt once he retires, you know, and people will see what, you know, what, what, what he did for terrestrial radio. Right. You know, um, I just think radio now is just such a lost art that it's, um, you know, satellite radio is just a different world. You know, I mean, it used to be that if you had a morning radio show in New York and you did something that morning, then that day on the streets, everyone was talking about it because it was this local thing, you know, and now satellite radio you got people listening from new orleans to new zealand you know it's a whole different kind of dynamic um which is crazy which is crazy because radio has always been such a huge part of my life but um i think howard stern definitely did a lot to um to advance what the what radio could be that's know? cool yeah. i'm glad that we said it Any, yeah. all right, <laughs> next one anybody have anything um you know, I really should prepare. Like yeah, I mean, do you have anything, Justin? Week. It's uh, the lightning round. Anything just on my mind? Yeah. Jeez. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think one of the things that, that, that I think, especially with everything going on now in the country, I, I think is it needs to be said is that people always tend to want to demonize and blame the people who they perceive to be beneath them for their problems instead of, the people above them, who they who are truly above them in the one percent or whatever it may be, um, and that and it, you know it turns into sort of the demonization of of new immigrants and new Americans and stuff, and it's it's just ugly. And and I I don't know, I mean I I can trace back why that is and and why that affects people sort of on a you know on a on so you a, believe in open borders? No, it's <laughs> it, it's it's a matter um, of, no, it's it's a matter of it's it's a matter of people who. They would sooner blame 
the guy who just moved to this country and is busting his ass t- to support his family of six and working, you know, three jobs, 14 hours a day, seven days a week, they would rather blame that guy for their perceived problems than they would, you know, the guys on Wall Street or the guys who, you know, uh, benefit from 421A, you know, um, and and that's a problem that we really need to reckon with, you know, because the, the people that are struggling, um, you know, trying to get to the working class or the middle class, uh, those aren't the, that's not the enemy, you know, and these people aren't the enemy. And it, it, it upsets me because I feel that, um, you know, people are led to believe certain things and, and they get, um, you know, they, they get fed this stuff, whether it's by our, our president or whoever it is. And, and it creates it creates a lot of ugliness, and 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 it's very hard to break through that and shatter that and make people understand that these aren't the pe- these people are not your enemy. You know, these aren't the people holding you down. There's uh, two things I just want to comment on that. One is the old philosophy of punching up or punching down. Right. Like if you got to criticize, you punch up whoever's above you. Right. Instead of punching down. Right. Which is an old. Uh, now it seems like most people are just easier to punch down. Right. And it's it's really it's dep- it's depressing well you know? a, cer- a certain segment of the population uh, right a certain yeah. segment of the population and then Which the other thing to be in power <laughs> well right. no that was the other thing i wanted to comment on i think it, being a political journalist there's a you know at election time i take more criticism from all sides i didn't cover this one right i was for this because politics is kind of a good guy bad guy sport like you need an enemy you know it has to be a tale of two cities or you know, somebody's winning and somebody's it's losing. It's always got to be a binary kind of d- thing. Like, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's just... And that's not reality, right? The world is not, mm-hmm. a, 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 you know, a, a binary thing, right? The world is 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 shades of gray. I mean, that's... Right. There's no wrong... It's gray. Not, yeah, it's not, you know, and... um, But it's hard now in, in, in the world that we're living, in the climate that we're living in, it's, it's hard to break through on that. And I just think it affects people in ways that they don't even realize, you know, and... um. It's just unfortunate. It's unfortunate that we have a leader who's willing to, you know, sort of, you know, be a he's a demagogue, you know, and and he and he this is how he gets his power by, you know, riling people up and making them think that. And you don't think AOC and the other side is a demagogus? No, that's the right word. (laughs) I don't have to look up, look that up. I mean, (laughs) I think I think practicing demagoguery when you're riling people up to 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 look down on people and say the people you know these people are coming for you and stealing your jobs it's just not true it's not, that's not reality well, there you know? i mean there is a certain like you know there have been studies that show that like when you know work, working class populations are inundated with new workers that the actual real wages decrease like there's not it's not completely mythical that this does have an effect on working class people but the long term effect and the reasons why immigration is good it's so inherently obviously beneficial for the entire society you know it's like it's it's it's, it's like it's, there's no comparison you know like we need a growing population we don't if you if we if we took out all of our immigration we'd have a declining birth rate like that would be dev- devastating think, you know like people, people it's really hard to sort of like conceptualize that because in the long run it's obvious that it's good the immigration is good but in the short run like there are legitimate concerns and those have to be addressed but and we can't ignore them, but like, and, and the demonization is totally separate from that because like you can make arguments against that without saying that people are rapists, 
But you know, there. I mean, it's a complicated issue. I think that I think there are some people that embrace America as this great experiment that we're still working on every day and trying to get it right. And there are people that want to go back in time and, and shut down the, the 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 laboratory. You know, and um, and unfortunately, the, the 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 president right now is the guy who you know, wants to go back in time and wants to... Yeah, but I I do want to bring back this thing with AOC because she, like, there was a recent law passed. You have um, Brooklyn, Bay Ridge is probably the most moderate um, area of New York, and Nancy Pelosi had famously said, and I paraphrase it, that, you know, a glass of water can get elected if a Democrat in Queens, right? Now you got Max Rose, who's a... I forgot the name of the caucus he belongs to. Very effective, very smart, meets with everybody, is an old Tip O'Neill-type Democrat, willing to work cross lines, and then you have AOC going, how can the Democrats pass this immigration thing and, and kind of putting them down? And I wonder if you can, you know, the progressives sometimes don't think those middle-of-the-road Dems are kind of what I mean, holds I think, the party I together. Think it's tough. I mean, I think there are folks who think um, electability is a bad word. I think there are people that think that, um, you know, in order to, you know, look, I'm a firm believer in it's it's very important to have great ideas. But if you don't, if you can't win an election, you can't make those great ideas happen. Then what's the point, right? I mean, you have to win elections to get good stuff done. Um, but you know, certain districts are just not they're swing districts. You know, I right. mean, and and you know, there's a different dynamic there, and and that's it comes down really to constituent services and making sure that people are being heard and and that their issues are being addressed, you know, because that's the stuff I think that can bring people together because that, you know, things like struggling with property taxes and quality of life issues, that goes across everybody, Democrat, Republican, no matter who, it doesn't matter. You're all dealing with the same stuff. So if you're prioritizing that stuff and, 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 and being super responsive to that stuff, then I think that goes a really long way. I mean, but there's districts that are different. I mean, there's di- like, you know, in, in our district, you still have to worry about general elections. That's just the reality of the district. I think it makes the district better. It makes the leaders better. It makes more people accountable. Just, there's and just it- certain things that, you know, in other districts, sure, would I love to be able to, you know, know that if, if, if I don't have a primary, then I'm home free? I mean, of course, but that's just not reality, you know, for where we are. And, you know, maybe someday it's going to be a, a situation where, you know, the, the, the entire city is like uh, these areas where it's it's um you know if you're a democrat you're good to go unless you have a primary but you know i I think it keeps certainly like you said i mean i think it definitely keeps us sharp in our area because we have to listen to all these voices you have to know when to lead and you have to know when to listen and you know but you have to be uh you just have to be super responsive and 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 remember that above all you're a public servant right and that if someone comes into my office, whether a Democrat or Republican, it it's, it doesn't matter. You have to help them. That's your job, you know. And then, you know, then you get into campaign season, and it's a whole different thing. But I think it definitely keeps you sharp because it's a very different dynamic than um, areas where there aren't competitive general elections. All right. Thank you. I'm glad you addressed that, Justin. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Right on. Um, All right. Justin, thank you so much for coming yeah, man, in. Yeah, this was fun. And sharing yeah, your yeah, experiences. Thank you, Justin. Sure. We appreciate yeah, right it. On. In the Brick Studio, it's nice here. Very right? nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. I've never been up here before. I've been downstairs, not up here. It's nice. Yeah. Um, we we'll thank them for working right. with us, <laughs> right giving on. us this space. Um, well, we look forward to uh, seeing your work in the, bo- in, in the city council, and um, we wish you the best for the rest of the year. And uh, 
Yeah, that's you it can follow me. King's Comedy oh, yeah. Polls. You got to do. What's your Twitter handle it's to follow you, Justin? At, at Justin Brennan. And uh, uh, Facebook page, uh, Justin Brennan. Justin Brennan, yeah. Uh, you can follow Kings County Polls at, at Kings County Politics at Kings County Polls. You can, we have kingscountypolitics.com, queenscountypolitics.com, and now newyorkcountypolitics.com. The whole suite. Right. Yeah. The whole, we're, we're <laughs> Staten Island's next. Oh, for, for real? Yeah, Richmond County Politics. We nice, have the site, and we're, we're trying cool. to Good for you. You know, get it up and running. That's awesome. All right, and Steve, your Twitter is what? Oh, Steven underscore wit. And I'm at Tom Rosati. So, right. yeah. Thank you, you guys. Find us there. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot.